I was recently asked, what's the sermon going to be about this Sunday? <clears throat> I said negativity. Next question was, so are you for it or against it? And then you start thinking about that, and I started thinking, wait, I'm negative on negativity. How does that work? They always told me that uh, not to use a double negative, but I always thought in math that two negatives become a positive. And I'm still not sure how that works, but I think we can go negative on negativity. The other interesting uh, beginning to this sermon was that I decided to use the word positivity. And a lot of my online apps did not even recognize that as a word. They would spell check it and say, no, you know, that, that's not legitimate. How is it that the word negativity is instantly recognized as a word, but positivity is not? Even the dictionary doesn't help. You go to the dictionary, you look up positivity, and it just takes you to positive. And uh, so... I, I think there's something worth talking about here. And, and I'm still fitting this into our theme of the growing season. Because negativity is one of the things you have to be aware of if you're going to grow a spiritual garden. If you're going to grow spiritually. If you're going to excel and thrive and be bountiful in the fruit of the Spirit. Negativity is what you want to watch out for because in one form or another it describes many of the works of the flesh. You know, we, we often tend to think of works of the flesh as those scandalous social things. Uh, and yet a lot of it has to do with discord, dissension, strife, things that really come down to negativity. Negativity will create spiritual crop failure. When you ask what causes crop failure, uh, there's, there's different factors, but, but usually when you're talking about something huge like blight, there's either some form of a toxic environment, the soil's not right, the water's not right, uh, there might be some sort of pestilence, there might be some sort of disease, it could be conditions, you've got not enough water, drought, you've got too much water, flood. Negativity is the spiritual equivalent of a toxic environment that will kill spiritual growth. And that's why I'm going to talk about this not only today, but next Sunday as well. Because this is, I think, you know, as they, as they often say in medicine and on the news, this is the silent killer. This is the thing that we don't even realize. Because negativity can also become culturally acceptable. Uh, you can, you can develop a, why isn't, there we go. You can develop a negative culture. And, and, and by the way, culture doesn't just mean everyone out there and everything out there. Culture has to do with the sum total of the ways that we as human people interact and the environment that we create that we all thrive in. So you can have a national culture. You can have a regional culture. You can have a local culture. You can have a culture in the workplace. You can have a culture in your family. And you can have a culture in your church. And sometimes in church, a variety of different cultures overlap with one another. But we develop and shape our own cultures just as much as we are shaped by and developed by the culture around us. 
And a negative culture can become unseen, invisible, and accepted. Cynicism, suspicion, and paranoia are, are some of the marks of a negative culture. You know, we just went through an election season nationally. And I think there's a, a natural part of us ever since, I don't know, for me it's 1974, and ever since then it's like, you know, all politicians lie to us. People come up with that negative, suspicious, paranoid point of view. And we're looking for something to help us overcome that. Or we may not be, we just give in to that. Maybe sometimes it's just more comforting to assume the worst. It can also happen in churches. You know, I've I've seen churches where they doubt what the shepherds and ministers do. Well, they go back there in the talk and they don't tell us anything what they're talking about, but I just know it's going to come out and it's going to hurt all of us. That sort of suspicion creates a negative culture between the leadership and, and, the, uh, and, and the church. And it can go both ways. Elder groups can do that. They can say, you know, listen, we've we got to get together because when we go out there, you know that they're coming after us. How do you, how do you know that? By the way, none of that happens here. Not a single bit of that happens anywhere around here. And see, but even my sarcasm there can be part of a negative culture. It happens to us because we're humans. It happens to us because this is, this is the environment that we live in. Now, I will tell you that in mentioning these things, it is not meant to insult, ridicule, or put down anyone else because those are also marks of a negative culture. I'm telling you, church, if you preach a sermon on negative culture, you become convicted all the way through. Sometimes we experience those barbed remarks. Maybe we give them or we hear them. And it's one of those jokes that's meant to be a joke, but you really know that deep down inside, there's something pointed and hurtful in it. One of my mentors used to call that the snow cone with a fish hook in it. I don't really understand how that works, but it's just such a wonderful image. You know, a wonderful, sweet, nice treat, cool and refreshing, and then it's got a fish hook in it. It's a kind word that also bites and destroys. Scripture will mention these same things as well. Scolding, worrying, nagging. Those can become ways that people try to control others or control the environment to suit their purposes. Or they might even be well-intentioned in it, and yet it can create a negative culture. We're a little more familiar with the negative, destructive effects of controversy, gossip, and complaining. And we see that in the uh, culture around us. Sometime, if you want to see something hilarious, there was, uh, there was someone, they had a website, and they would take those, those, magazine, uh, those magazines, those newspapers, those tabloids that you always see when you're checking out at the store, And it has all of the worst stuff that you can say about people in the public eye. And what they would do is they would would rewrite the headlines with a piece of uh, masking tape and a pen. And so instead of talking about the scandal that this family's involved in, it would just say something like, you know, they're probably tired of this. Maybe we should pray for them. And you start looking at that, and it's humorous at first. But then you realize, yeah. We accept it as the norm that the headlines that come across our papers or our television screens, that they should just be 
scandalous and controversial. And everybody wants to be the newsbreaker. It's a, it's a strong temptation. But what's it do to us? And how does it shape all of the cultures that we live in? Realizing that we live with that kind of toxin around us, we need to be prepared. By the way, one of the ways that a negative culture changes things, and, and this is what some of us may need to learn, it's where I've been, there's a difference between being a critical thinker and having a critical spirit. Many of us are taught to be critical thinkers. And a critical thinker is someone who looks at things, identifies problems, but the goal is always to fix the problem. And that's kind of exciting. Uh, critical thinking has to do with science. It has to do with diagnosis. Uh, critical thinking can help improve things. But it is a rational process where we examine all things, all of the facts, uh, truth, and, and, and you know, all of the truth, and we see what's working, what's not, and we analyze and then seek to improve. It is not a negative endeavor. But often it gets confused with a critical spirit, which is a spirit that wants to tear down, to diminish, to demean. And if that gets, if critical thinking gets invested with that, then the critical thinking is not meant to improve a situation. It's just meant to expose what's wrong. And how do any of us gain from that? Because often it starts with the assumption that everyone is wrong and it's up to us to either protect ourselves or to point it out. Negativity then, when it is allowed to grow, it's what we might call, and, and, and by the way, I, if, if they had known about microbiology in the first century, I'm convinced that this would be in your, it'd be all throughout the New Testament. But I'm going to show you that there are some places where they do have that understanding. Negativity is highly contagious. It is viral. Uh, everybody's experience, you know, our attendance has been down over the last few weeks, and a lot of it has to do with viruses. It has to do with illnesses. I'm, here, I'm seeing your prayer reports. People are being tested. They're identifying positive on different viruses. A virus is a malicious packet of genetic code that wants to do nothing more than replicate. It wants to grow, and it doesn't care what's in its way. Spiritual negativity is the same way. I think this is why James, in James chapter 3, describes the tongue as a small spark that can start a raging fire. That's his way of describing the viral nature of negativity. So, we know that sometimes we're going to have that negative virus, just like we're all going to come down with some sickness. If you do have that sickness, you don't want to be that guy, okay? That guy's the one that doesn't cover his mouth. I can say cover your mouth or cover your cough in two languages, but I'm, I, you know, I'm that responsible with it. And, and I think it's good that, that we want to know that because we understand that if we take some minimal precautions, we can cut down on the transmission of viruses, just simple things. 
But, but, you know, when you've got Sammy Sneeze here and he's just, you know, spraying it everywhere, that poor woman's just getting hit with it. What can you do? If we're irresponsible, we don't worry about the transmission of negativity. We are the spiritual equivalent of that infected joker who's just running around sneezing, coughing, and hacking on everyone. And here's the thing. The nice people who get coughed on and sneezed, they don't want to tell you spiritually to cover your mouth. So I'm telling you. (laughs) Cover your mouth. And as one who suffers from this, I'm telling it to you with humility. We have to find ways. You've got to sneeze. Oh, don't you hate it when that sneeze gets stuck somewhere up in here? You know? Up, you, know just, you know that every time a sneeze gets stuck like that, it's going to cause your brain to explode. And it's, that's factual science right there. And you hate that. You, know, you, gotta, you, know, you, you want to get rid of that. But you've got to do it responsibly. You've got to find a way to do that so that you're not transmitting these viruses and this negativity to everyone else. There is a historic moment in the story of God's people where negativity becomes viral and there are huge consequences. They have a plague, an outbreak, an epidemic of negativity. You'll find it in Exodus, and it happens more than once. Uh, throughout the chapters of Exodus 14, 15, 16, 17. And by the way, right in the middle of this, at their lowest moment when they think all hope is lost, God parts the Red Sea. If I told you to name one thing you know about the Exodus, you'd probably say God parted the Red Sea. Exactly. It's the climax moment. Even when Cecil B. DeMille made the movie, it's the climax moment. You've got to part that Red Sea, and they've got to walk through. And then they sing a song about it, and it becomes a story that they tell for generations. But there's another side to it. It's the side where they shape a negative narrative. They tell the story differently because they know more than God. In Exodus 14, they're complaining, they're grumbling, many translations say. Didn't we tell you, Moses, leave us alone here in Egypt? We were better off as slaves in Egypt than as corpses in the wilderness. Well, they weren't corpses in the wilderness. Corpses don't complain. They were not better off as slaves. They were crying out to God for generations. But because they had come to that moment and they were worried, they were scared, They created a negative culture. And by the way, notice, you've got guys like Dathan who are named, but overall, it's everyone. Everyone shapes this negative narrative. The story is going to end badly. The worst thing that can happen is going to happen. This is what we call a self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm probably just going to grow up and not be very successful, and I'm going to be a loser, and no one will like me. If you keep telling yourself that, it will come true. Because that's a negative, that's a negative self-fulfilling prophecy. You're going to make it true because you've convinced yourself that that is the story of your life. And one of the, 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 part of the good news, the truth of the gospel is that God writes our story. That He is the author 
of our faith. He's the perfecter of our faith. What does it mean to be the perfecter? It means that he's not only the one who writes the script, he carries it out. So notice Exodus 16. You've brought us out of this wilderness to starve us to death. Sure. God worked the miracles in Egypt just to get people out there in the desert to starve them. The whole company of Israel. That's paranoia. You ever been traveling with someone and they get so upset that, you know, they're like, you know, aren't you going to stop and get us some food? You know, you've brought me out here to die. They're, they're whining. It's paranoia. It's, nothing ever goes right. They're creating their own negative culture. Why did you take us away from Egypt? You know, if you just stop and face that with rationality, because you asked to leave, that's why. Because God heard you saying, get us out of here. But now it's why. Why did you do that? And then drag us out here with our children and our animals to die of thirst. Yeah, that was God's intent. All along, he said that he wanted them to go to the place he was going to show them where they could worship him. But they have cast the negative narrative. And this moment goes down in their history as a critical turning point where that generation who goes out there and writes that as their negative, that generation will die in the desert. The generation to follow will accomplish God's purposes. Do we understand this? That generation coming out of Egypt, they could have been the ones who conquered the promised land. They could have been the ones who settled the land of milk and honey, but they could not. Why? Because they were less powerful? Because they were once slaves in Egypt? No. Because this is the story that they wrote for themselves. How many times do we, as God's people, cut ourselves out of the plans that God can accomplish through us because we write a negative narrative? This, by the way, becomes a warning for future generations of Israel and even for the church. Paul will bring this up in 1 Corinthians 10 and warn the church not to make the same mistake of grumbling that they did. In fact, he calls it rebellion against God. Yeah, so negativity is a little more serious than just having a bad day. This same thing will be done with Jesus. The people begin to grumble in disagreement because Jesus said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Well, they're offended by that statement. That statement doesn't make sense to them. That statement doesn't fit for them. It's not what they know. And Jesus is starting to say a lot of stuff that becomes offensive in John chapter 6. He starts saying that they need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. That's disgusting. He shouldn't say things like that. And so they write a negative narrative. Who does he think he is? Bread come down from heaven. Look, don't we know his parents? Yes, we do. Remember the carpenter Joseph and Mary? And all that talk about the virgin birth, remember that? And you know that there are some knowing looks among the negative culture saying, mm, yeah, we know this guy. Bread from heaven. That's negative culture. They are negatively crafting the narrative about Jesus so that they will not listen to Jesus say who he is and instead they want to define him as who they think he ought to be 
or they're going to demean him so they can feel comfortable about dismissing him. We may not do that with people, but how often do we do that with God's plans? How often do we do that with dreams? That when we come together and we dream as a church, we think, you know, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great? Uh, yeah, but it'll never happen. I mean, you know, you just can't do that, we say to one another. And maybe we're cutting ourselves out of what God could do if we are willing to trust in Him. You cannot write off the gospel. You cannot dismiss or rewrite the story of God and Christ and the Holy Spirit. In fact, just to show you how serious this can be, um, most times when I talk about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, maybe you've heard about that one, I usually am talking about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit when someone is worried that they've committed that sin because they realize there's no forgiveness of that sin. And everyone worries that they've committed that sin because then you're doomed. Well, the way that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit works is that you are negatively dismissing the very power that forgives you. It would be as if you had a, um, uh, a sickness and a physician prescribed an antibiotic and they said, this will, this will cure you. No, I don't believe in that, so I'm not going to take that. Well, you might survive, you might not. You've rejected the very means of help. That's what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. And the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a form, a destructive form of negativity. Mark 3 shows us the example of this. When the teachers, the teachers of the religious law, the ones who should know better, but they did not want to accept who Jesus was, so what do they do? They craft a negative narrative for him. Hey, look, he's casting out demons. Well, he does that because he's possessed by the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. Because he is demonic. And Jesus comes back to them and says, look, rationally that doesn't make sense. But then he goes on to his second point to say, I'm going to tell you the truth. Every sin, every blasphemy can be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven, will never be forgiven. Why? Because, he says, it's a sin with eternal consequences. He says that power of the Holy Spirit is the very power that's going to allow you to accept the forgiveness of God. And if you are rejecting it, how can you be saved? I like the way Eugene Peterson translates it. They are sawing off the limb that they're sitting on. We're killing ourselves. Anyway, talk to me if you're really worried about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. A point that I'm really trying to make here is, it's a form of negativity. And until we get over that, until we accept that the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit, we can't be forgiven. That never, by the way, is not, up. Oh, you did that. Well, please, Christ, can you forgive me now? I accept it. Uh, no, those are just the rules. You can't ever be forgiven. Sorry, thought we explained that at the front office. That's not how that works. The lack of forgiveness is there because the one needing to be forgiven will not accept the forgiveness. Negativity is viral also for many of us, not because we necessarily buy into the negativity of others. We know who our upset friends and neighbors and family members are. We get that, but then we start to own their negativity, 
And I don't know about you, but I was always taught uh, that um, you don't ever want to do anything that causes someone to stumble. And so you go through life very conscientious and carefully wondering, well, if I do something that makes someone to stumble, God will know this, and then I'll be forever held accountable for this, and I didn't even know that I made them stumble. And as I matured later on and then moved into ministry, I realized that I do a lot of things that make people stumble, and I don't intend to. But then a wise man put it, because I had people say, well, you shouldn't do that. Why? Because it offends me. I'm thinking, wait, you're playing the weaker member card on me? You are a mature member of the church, and you're the one who's saying to me that, yes, yes, I don't like it when you do that. So, so you're not going to take any responsibility in this. No, you need to change. It doesn't make sense, and it was a wise man who pointed out to me that there is a difference between making your brother or sister stumble and making your brother or sister grumble. They're not the same thing. I have to take responsibility for myself. You have to take responsibility for yourself. And when we're irresponsible and we weaken the faith of someone that is weak, that can be damaged, that's a stumbling block. But when we do things that irritate one another, that's not necessarily a stumbling block. That's just negativity being run rampant. Notice that Scripture guides us on the grumbling brother or sister, even if we are the grumbling brother or sister. 1 Corinthians 10, he brings up that Israel story, and he says, we must be careful not to stir up discontent. Why? Because discontent destroyed Israel in the desert. Sometimes we can grumble about the grumblers. And we are not more righteous because we think that we're just grumbling. Well, you're just grumbling about the grumblers. And if I'm grumbling about the grumblers, then, you know, it's really them, not me. No, we're being just as negative about those who are negative. That is not the way to approach this. James 5, James is teaching us, oh, how to live with each other, how to be responsible with the negativity, how to cover our mouths spiritually and control that negativity to master the tongue. He says, don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. And he doesn't mean by other people. He's saying that the judge is waiting at the door. In other words, we all are accountable to God first. So we need to grow up. We need to be mature. We need to ask ourselves, well, how do I behave in this situation? What do I need to do so that I'm not a grumbler? Because sometimes our grumbling can make weaker brothers and sisters who are maybe new to the faith or struggling in their faith, it can make them stumble. Jude explains all of the problems with a group in a congregation that he's aware of. He wants to talk about salvation, but he's got to talk about the things that are going on. And he describes these folks through, uh, through examples from history, and he names it. And he says they're grumblers, they're complainers, and they live only to satisfy their own desires. Right there is one of the uh, indications, is the difference between somebody who's truly stumbling and somebody who's just grumbling, is that when it comes down to what they prefer and what they want, and they're grumbling about it, you and I may not be responsible for the grumbling. It may be something that we can gently and politely say to them, why don't you work on how 
to overcome this. Years ago, I met someone who was uh, in that situation, and God gave me some wisdom, and I just said, you know what? I've offered some solutions here that might work, and none of them seem to be sufficient. No. So I said to this person, I give you permission to be unhappy. And that made them very positive. That person said, well, thank you. That's all I wanted. And it was over. Some people work very hard at that. You need to admire their work. The, and I think the other thing is, is that you've got to know what kind of situation we're in and how to, be wise, how to be wise in that situation and pray for the wisdom that God gives that is promised again, you know, in James. Because one of the things is we need to learn the lesson not to take the bait. People on uh, social media are learning that. Oh, you know. There are these things called trolls, and uh, for those of you who are uninitiated, and their whole purpose is to just get people stirred up, just make people angry. They say that the first, historically, you know what the first troll was? You know what the very first troll was? They say that historically the first troll was someone who went into an American car forum, and they made some statement about American cars versus foreign cars. Yeah, that'll stir up a stink right there. Next thing you know, everybody comes in with an opinion, and if they had been in the same room, they probably would have, wanted, would have gone to fisticuffs. That's, I guess some people just get a little delight out of that, you know, stirring things up. Paul tells Timothy, you've got those people in your church, Timothy, and he says, avoid worthless, foolish talk that only leads to more godless behavior. That kind of talk spreads like cancer. The original says gangrene. Either one will work. There's that viral nature. And you know, you've heard this lesson. I don't think we teach this lesson enough in our Christian walk, in our church culture, in our environment. Sometimes you just have to listen and don't take the bait. Because that's all it is. Someone's baiting you into an argument. You don't have to, you don't have to show up to every argument that you're invited to. Remember that. What we need to do is start forming boundaries. Boundaries are okay. If you're in a highly toxic environment, you're going to have your hazmat suit on. If others aren't covering their mouth, you're going to be covering yours. People in the medical professional wear the, uh, the latex gloves. Why? Because they don't want to spread transmission or receive it. Those are boundaries. Even in the world we live in, there are boundaries, there are doors, there are walls, there are fences. Sometimes that's looked down upon as a bad thing, and I guess it can be. But sometimes it's a good thing because it lets me know that this is where my yard begins and ends and your yard begins and ends, and I can be neighborly and I can be a guest, but, you know, there comes a time that i got to understand I don't belong there and I need to go a different way. That's what Paul's trying to tell Titus when he advises that other young preacher and says, don't get involved in foolish discussions. Those things are useless. They're a waste of time. And here's the boundary. If they're causing divisions among you, give a first warning and a second warning. After that, have nothing more to do with them. Well, this, this sounds like sports. How many warnings do you get in soccer? What do you get? Warnings do you get in soccer? Two? You get one. Okay. Yeah, there you go. How about five fouls? Then you're out of the game. 
unless it's a T. You know, there's got to be boundaries. There's got to be rules. There's got to be something that says this cannot continue. Well, we need to do that. And, and actually, that's not being mean. Nobody likes it when the ref calls a foul, unless it's on the other team. And then we're okay with it. But there's got to be some way that we, as a people, help one another behave better. And we make ourselves accountable to one another. Not dragging the rules down and being tattletales, but some kind of boundary. And notice that Paul says to Titus, the people who get involved in these foolish discussions and are wasting your time, they've turned away from the truth. They don't want to know the truth anymore. They are more wrapped up in the negative culture, and they want to win on their terms. Their own sins condemn them, and Paul says, Titus, you're going to get dragged down by all that. These are just, this is just a sampling of some of the things that Scripture points out about the seriousness of shaping a godly, spiritual culture that causes everyone to grow. And you begin to see a vision of what that's like in Philippians. Do everything readily and cheerfully. And he's not talking about joy Nazis here who just paint a smile on their face. Happy, happy all the time. We've got to be happy. But I feel bad today. I don't care. Put a smile on. That, that's not helpful. He's talking about cultivating a spirit of, of readiness. And, and cheer has to do with our enthusiasm, our, our willingness to grow and to expect the best. It's the opposite of bickering and second-guessing. I mean, why do we second-guess things? We need to examine that. Just go out into the world uncorrupted. You will be a breath of fresh air in this squalid and polluted society. Provide people with a glimpse of good living and of the living God. Carry the light-giving message into the night so that I'll have good cause to be proud of you on the day that Christ returns. That's our vision. That's our dream. And if you're having one of those days where you're thinking, I just don't know that I can ever get there, beware of that self-fulfilling prophecy. Look, we're all going to have bad days. We're all going to have down moments. It's going to happen. But the worst things are never the last things in Jesus Christ. When we're walking with God, we've got this vision, this hope of a promised land, of a promised time, of a provision of God. If Israel had understood that when they were walking through the desert, they would have understood, look, today it's hot. Today it's tough. We're eating manna. But this is not the way it's always going to be. And sometimes what we need is to be able to draw off of a positive culture a gospel culture of good news that helps us make it when we're truly stumbling. And if we're grumbling, we can't help those who are stumbling. At the end of this service, what we want to do is we want to we recognize that negativity can be a serious poison. It can be a serious detriment to spiritual growth. And we need to be honest with ourselves and honest with one another about it. There's going to be a couple of our shepherds who are, who are right here. You see, our shepherds want to hear from you. They're not going to judge you. They're going to walk with you. They're going to help you walk without stumbling. There's going to be some of them in a room in there that has pews in it. 
And just in whatever way we can turn to one another and support and encourage each other during the, this, this last song, we're going to do that. And then one of our shepherds will send us out in prayer. So let's stand and let's encourage one another with these words.